The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. rolls into town at the end of April every year, drawing hundreds of folks to the quiet and typically calm town of Asotin. But this is also a time of year that brings back a specific memory, the memory of a mystery of a girl who seemingly vanished into thin air. There are no answers, but there are clues those clues point to a possible connection with murders across the river in Lewiston. They realized perhaps this person was responsible not only for the three people in Lewiston, but also Christina White's disappearance. It was Christina White's mother that told us the suspect's name. The Lewiston Civic Theater, a stoic, historic graystone, now lays condemned, decrepit, and at risk of falling apart. This description plays all too well into the reality of a case that's gone cold. This week, I'll be telling you the story of the Lewis Clark Valley murders. This case was suggested by my listener Tracy on Instagram. So thanks for sending this case to me, along with a recommendation for the documentary on the case called Confluence, which can be viewed on Prime Video. Usually I choose one town to profile, but this week I'm going to profile an area instead, because I think it will make the case easier to understand. The Lewis-Clark Valley consists of two states, Washington and Idaho. Lewiston is on the Idaho side, and Clarkston and Asotin are on the Washington side, with a bridge separating the states. The valley was named after the Lewis and Clark expedition, which had camped at the confluence of the Clearwater and Snake Rivers during their westward journey of the United States. It's right in the heart of the PNW. All three are small, quiet towns. The thing I heard repeatedly was that it's a great place to raise a family. Education is also a strong point for the valley. Nearby, they have lots of opportunities for education, including WSU, U of I, Lewis Clark State College, and Walla Walla Community College. There's also no shortage of blue-collar jobs as well, making it an ideal location to make a living. The Lewis Clark Valley was considered a safe, all-American valley where people settled to live an idyllic, simple life. Life in the valley was considered relaxing and mundane. No one gave a second thought to letting their kids run around town unsupervised. But towards the end of the 70s, a series of events started to unfold that would change the L.C. Valley forever. Between 1979 and 1982, 
five disappearances would rock these small towns, and when bodies began turning up, police knew that a serial killer was likely the culprit. In fact, they even had a solid idea of who was responsible for the killings. But lack of evidence and two of the victims remaining missing person cases rendered them unable to make an arrest in this killing spree, even though they stated they were 99% sure they knew who was responsible. Complicating the case was the different jurisdictions that had to be figured out for all five cases when city, county, and state lines run all throughout the valley. In the spring of 1979, Christina White was a 12-year-old girl living in Asotin, Washington. She was very involved in her church. In fact, when she went missing, she was two weeks away from being confirmed. Her dad described her as loving all of the outdoor things, like hunting and fishing, and she was also a talented artist. In the Confluence documentary, her dad showed off one of her beautiful paintings that he keeps on his wall. She was a sixth grader at the local elementary school. On the morning of April 28, 1979, Christina White joined her mom and her little sister Carlin as they headed into town for the county fair parade. Her mom and sister walked while Christina rode her bike, and the plan was for her to head to the Asotin County Fair after the parade was over with a friend. When the parade had ended around noon, Christina headed to the fair, and her mom and sister were given a ride home by friends. Around 2.30 p.m., she called her mom to say she wasn't feeling well. It was the first really hot day of the year, and she did not do well in the heat, and it was causing her to feel sick at the fair. Her mom told her to sit in the shade with a washcloth until she cooled down. Being that her mom didn't have access to a car, she said she would walk to meet her if she needed. However, Christina assured her that she would be fine and would call back if she needed anything. Unbeknownst to her mother, Christina hopped on her pink huffy bike and went up the road to a friend's house. The boyfriend of this friend's mother assisted her by giving her a washcloth to cool down. Although her friend was in the backyard bathing her dogs and never actually saw Christina come to the door that day. The mother's boyfriend had said he had given her the washcloth and she started riding the bike towards her house. This was the last confirmed sighting of Christina. Meanwhile, thinking she was probably feeling better and having fun at the fair, her mom went about her day. But later that evening, her parents started worrying when she had not arrived back home. Once it started to get dark, knowing what a responsible girl she was, they panicked and began looking for her. Her parents posted a $500 reward in hopes of finding their missing daughter. On Sunday morning, Christina's dad asked the police to search the fair, specifically all of the trailers that would be leaving town, but the police did not. A local man who owned a helicopter flew Christina's dad and her brother over the whole valley at a low altitude looking for her or her pink huffy bike, but they had no luck. He said in the Confluence documentary that the police had no interest in assisting him and told him that she needed to be missing for three days before they would get involved. This was common practice back then, but I can't even fathom being a parent of a missing child and being told to wait three days before you could receive help from authorities. That would be a very helpless feeling. Even though, according to Christina's father, they did not offer assistance, they did ask the parents to take a lie detector test during these first three days, which both agreed to and both passed. Her dad then followed the carnival to the next stop, which was in Tri-Cities, Washington. He literally followed the caravan of carnival rides and workers down the road. He hung out there for three days looking for his daughter and unfortunately didn't have any luck finding her. Christina's schoolwork was later found blowing around the outskirts of town, 
but that is the only physical evidence in her case over 40 years later. Her case is still labeled missing endangered to this day. The next victim in the string of violence in the Elsie Valley was Kristen David. Kristen was tiny but mighty. At 4 foot 11, her dad, John David, describes her as a very caring person. She was studying journalism and was an avid cycler. She enjoyed taking long bike rides on her blue bike. On Thursday evening, June 26, 1981, Kristen had a friend drop her off in Moscow, Idaho with her bicycle, and her plan was to ride her blue 10-speed back to Lewiston early Friday morning. She loved biking and had just repainted her bike that day. The last confirmed sighting of Kristen was someone who spotted her going down the hill into Lewiston on Highway 95 on the way to report to her summer job at the Twin City Food Plant. This was a regular ride for Kristen, and it's about a 30-mile trek, but almost all downhill, so she enjoyed doing this on a nice day. The last unconfirmed sighting was a witness who saw a brown Ford van pulled over right near his property at the county line on Highway 95. This property owner saw a female bicyclist laying on the ground, and the man from the brown van pulled over and walking back towards her with a big smile on his face. Without cell phones, and with the driver who appeared to be helping what looked to be the injured biker, he drove to his house, which was just out of sight from the incident, to call for an ambulance. Later that day, he got a call back saying that they found nothing there. No brown van, no bike, no injured woman. However, since this man did not know Kristen personally and could not identify her, this is listed as a possible sighting. The property owner did work with the police to come up with a composite sketch of the guy who was around 6 feet tall, between the ages of 25 and 35, and had a beard. The composite sketch does not resemble the person of interest in all of the other cases. Since this happened right on the line of Lataw County and Nez Perce County, there was a discussion of which sheriff's office would be heading up the case. But Sheriff Mike Gitz of Lataw County stepped up and said he would take on the case. This is repeatedly an issue with most of these cases grouped into the L.C. Valley serial killer case. Not only are there county lines, but also city and state lines that can cause issues of which jurisdiction should handle what. This makes a difference between what lab evidence would go to, where tests would be run, and who is financially responsible for an investigation. Just over a week after she disappeared, on July 4, 1981, two fishermen who were fishing off of their boat near the Red Wolf Crossing Bridge in Lewiston noticed black garbage bags bobbing in the water. When they opened it up, they discovered body parts. They did not have a radio aboard their boat, so they flagged down another boat to fetch authorities. Once the authorities arrived, they found more black bags with Kristen's body, all within about 300 yards of the bridge. This caused authorities to believe that the killer threw the bags over the bridge. If you watched the Confluence documentary, be prepared to have some emotions when her father, John David, describes this part. There is just so much pain and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Authorities came to the conclusion that a knife was used to dismember the body and that the person who did it was likely skilled and knew what they were doing, possibly a butcher or maybe a hunter. At this point, the whole valley was terrified. Things like this did not happen around the valley, and now, two years apart, they have a missing child and a homicide. As it goes with small towns, rumors and speculation began to run rampant. 
One unconfirmed rumor I came across was that one of the two fishermen who discovered Kristen's body was the mother's boyfriend of the friend who was the last witness to see little Christina alive. Now on to our third and fourth victims. Christina Nelson was described as an outgoing girl by her father. She was a cheerleader and went to college. She loved animals and was interested in becoming a vet. Her stepsister, Jacqueline Brandy Miller, who went by the name Brandy, was also described as outgoing. The girls were ages 9 and 11 when their parents were married, and they began living together as a blended family. They reportedly rarely fought and had a strong sisterly bond. They were both very well-behaved children, and the family dynamic was solid. In 1982, both Christina and Brandy were students at LC State, and they both worked on and off at the Lewiston Civic Theater. On September 12, 1982, Christina Nelson was 21 years old and Brandy Miller was 18 when they met up at a point between their two apartments to go to a grocery store together. Christina had left a note for her boyfriend informing him of their plans to head to Safeway. This should have been a very quick trip, but the girls never returned. The family panicked immediately, not being able to find either of the girls, but it intensified when Christina didn't show up to class at Lewis Clark State College and she missed her shifts at the drive-in movie theater. The police and family searched the apartments they were last known to be at and everything was in place, purses left behind, and they found the note left for Christina's boyfriend saying that they were going to the store. And now the fifth and final possible victim of the Elsie Valley murders. A few days after Christina and Brandy disappeared, 35-year-old Stephen R. Pirasol was reported missing by his family. When he went missing, his parents went to his apartment and found everything in normal order and found nothing to suggest that he had decided to leave on his own accord. They found his wallet with his ID, uncashed checks, and his car were all at his apartment. Once they narrowed down the last time anyone had seen Stephen, it was decided that it was a Lewiston police officer who was on patrol and saw Stephen enter the side door of the Lewiston Civic Theater around midnight, and that was the last known sighting. He was 35 years old, and his girlfriend had dropped him off on the night of September 12, 1982, the same night Christina and Brandy went missing. These three missing people actually knew each other. Christina was formerly a janitor at the Civic Theater, and when she quit, she was replaced by Stephen. All three of them had involvement to some extent at the theater. Both Christina and Brandy described him as being like a big brother. As a janitor for the theater, Stephen kept things tidy, operating, and also painted backdrops for the play. He would use the theater to do his laundry and practice his clarinet. He was immediately ruled a suspect in the disappearance of the two women, and it was even printed in the papers and on TV and radio news, which broke his parents' heart. One thing they were most upset about was that the paper had used a picture of their son with long hair and a beard. But his appearance in that picture was for a role he was playing at the theater for a part in Jesus Christ Superstar. And they felt like it wasn't an accurate portrayal of their son. Stephen was a military veteran who loved to perform. He also played the clarinet and performed in the plays at the Civic Theater. One of the main reasons he became a suspect was that because the Lewiston Civic Theater was thought to have been a crime scene, since all three of the missing people from that day were associated to some extent with the theater. 
It is now believed by most that Stephen was a victim after witnessing what happened to Christina and Brandy. His clarinet was found hidden under a cover for the orchestra pit. His family states that if he were to run away from something, he would have at least taken his clarinet, let alone the important valuables that were left behind in his apartment. About a year and a half later, on March 19, 1984, Marvin Mead was about 14 years old, and he had just been kicked out of school. He was out collecting cans on the Kendrick grade about 30 miles from Lewiston to make a little money. He came across a school down an embankment, and thinking it was from a deer, he picked it up. He quickly realized it was likely human and called authorities. The Lataw County Sheriff's Office responded and found two sets of remains that had cords attached. It appeared that someone had stood from the road and rolled them down using the cords. The cords were determined to have come from the Civic Theater. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. There was a man who, going forward, I will refer to as the person of interest. However, you can easily Google his name when searching for any information on this case. There's also a Facebook page on this case called Lewis Clark Valley Serial Killer. There's over 8,000 people following it, and it has a solid timeline of the person of interest's life and also just random articles or news that comes up. So I suggest if you're interested in this case, you go give them a follow. This person of interest was in the Civic Theater the same night that the three went missing doing janitorial work. He stated while working upstairs he had taken a fall, which caused him to feel shaky and drowsy. He didn't come home that night, according to his wife, which was the first time in their marriage for that to have occurred. He claimed to have fallen asleep in the theater on a couch in what they called the green room, but he claims he did not hear anything nefarious happening. 
However, Stephen Purisall would have walked right into that room through the side door that the Lewiston police officer witnessed him enter. He stated he had been working with Stephen Purisall to build the set, and he claims that Stephen left around 9 p.m. to head out to a party, but he stayed and worked on the set and eventually fell asleep. During an extensive interview with the person of interest, it was discovered that he was the man to have last seen 12-year-old Christina White alive. This is the friend's mom's boyfriend of the house she stopped to ask for help. Between the house she stopped at for help and where she was going, which was her house, the person of interest owned a vacant home along the way. At the time, the home had a dirt basement, but shortly after the disappearance of Christina, he poured concrete in the basement to finish the floor. Since then, they have used cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar experts. The expert detected an 8 by 6 foot irregularity in the concrete, so they dug it up. But there was nothing there. When this person of interest went to sell the house, a female real estate agent stopped by for a showing. She told the police that he was very excited to show her the basement, and when she had turned around, he was right behind her, holding a wooden object above his head as if he were about to strike her with it. But when she turned around, it startled him, and he hid it behind his back. He then asked her if anyone knew she was there, and so she said, yes, lots of people. This caused him to be less interested in showing her the basement, and luckily she made it out of that house alive that day. Neighbors described the person of interest as odd and often displaying strange behavior. He also owned another property with a dome house, and a neighbor at that property called the authorities to complain that he was digging frequently on the property late at night. The police also searched that property, but came up empty-handed. According to Christina White's mother, who was the missing 12-year-old, when she was at the police station the first night of the disappearance, the person of interest came in and was right in her face trying to help. He also had means in the Kristen David case. At the time of her disappearance, he would drive back and forth between Moscow and Lewiston daily on Highway 95 where she disappeared from on her bike. Kristen also had loose ties to the Lewiston Civic Theater. She was a journalist major, and she had an interest in the theater, and she had volunteered there in the past and was familiar with the person of interest. The authorities sent off a recorded interview with the person of interest to an expert voice analyst, and that expert came to the conclusion that he seemed to have knowledge that only the killer would have and that there was deception shown in the voice stress analysis. His attorney conveyed that he did not want to speak with authorities about any of the missing or murdered people and even threatened to the police and families of the victims that if they spoke to him, it would be harassment. At this point, there was just not enough physical evidence to tie him to it. Many of the families feel that one of the main reasons the cases have not been solved is the jurisdictional nightmare of having five missing and murdered people out of a valley that has city, county, and state lines all in one small area. For example, one jurisdiction could take evidence in a case, but maybe that doesn't get passed along to another office who could have used that information. The other thing hurting the case was the lack of physical and forensic evidence, and the fact that they are still missing two bodies. In the Confluence documentary, they have interviews with several different leaders in law enforcement who were in charge of the different jurisdictions. And while one was telling the paper they were 99% sure they knew who the guy was, another was saying he didn't even think all five cases were connected to one suspect. 
So that is how far apart these investigators were in their findings. Two other law enforcement leaders believe that the Kristen David case might not be involved, but the four others are connected. Kristen's case was different because of the way she was disposed of. Most of these officials have been retired for 20 to 30 years at this point. The case is still active to this day, and the advances in DNA has helped keep it alive. In the Cold Valley docuseries from ID, the retired police chief of Asotin, Tom Pryor, stated that he was new as the police chief at the time of Christina White's disappearance, and he had never been to any police training or academy. Now let's dig a little deeper into the life of our person of interest. Before any of the Lewiston disappearances took place, the person of interest had been arrested in California for trespassing. Here is the full creepy story of what happened. In 1972, several years before the first incident in the L.C. Valley, Antoinette Anino was walking the beach in Santa Cruz, California with her boyfriend, her brother, and his girlfriend. She and her boyfriend had a fight, and they sat down to talk about it, while her brother and his girlfriend kept walking. They couldn't settle the issue, and her boyfriend said he was going to catch up with her brother and that she should join them when she calms down. The three teens that had went ahead were later approached by a security guard, saying that they needed to leave as the park was about to close for the night. And when they went back to look, they couldn't find Antoinette. They ended up having to leave without her. At around 3.30 a.m., a couple walking along the beach came across Antoinette's body floating in the water. Officers responded and found no obvious signs of physical harm on her body, but did note that she was nude. However, they walked the beach to find her clothes, and they were nowhere to be found. Her death was ruled a suicide, and she was taken to a San Jose funeral home, where the person of interest broke into the funeral home and was caught with a knife and a camera. He had broken in through a window by cutting the screen with the knife. The funeral director lived above the mortuary and heard the ruckus and went downstairs. Antoinette was the only body at the mortuary that night. And when confronted, the person of interest said he was just there to see his girlfriend one last time. Huge red flag. This is so suspicious, and I think there is a high probability that Antoinette was met with foul play at the hands of the person of interest because of the mortuary break-in, and also, if she had committed suicide nude, her clothes would be on the beach, and they were never found. When I was considering this part of the story as a woman myself, I was wondering how common it was for a woman to commit suicide in the nude. Turns out, it's not common at all. In my research, I found that many of the famous cases of women who supposedly committed suicide in the nude, their cases are under suspicion. The three cases in the article I read were Marilyn Monroe, Rebecca Zahau, and Cleopatra. All of their deaths were ruled a suicide, but all had a cloud of suspicion around that, and there were signs that pointed to maybe their deaths were not a suicide. So after digging a little deeper, the missing clothes in Antoinette's case are another huge red flag in my eyes. In March of 1984, the person of interest sat down for another interview with police after refusing for years. This time, he was suspected of murder. This second interview revealed many discrepancies in his story. He stated he went to have a beer and watch a movie the night the Civic Theater 3 disappeared, and his timeline puts him back at the Civic Theater after Stephen would have arrived, trying to distance himself from being around one of the missing persons. He also accounted for moving his car by saying that he was going to head home around 5 a.m. and then realized his wife would have already left for work. And so he drove back to the theater, 
which authorities believe was an alibi as to why someone may have seen him driving around 5 a.m. The FBI profiler who reviewed this interview concluded that the story is likely made up due to the variables in the story he told. One of the interesting things learned from the interview was that he stated he went to have a beer at a pizza place called Red Baron Pizza. If timed correctly, this would have been right on track for him to cross paths with Christina and Brandy as they walked to Safeway that night. And that could be one of the ways that they came into contact that night. And since Christina had worked at the Civic Theater, they would probably have stopped and talked with the person of interest and possibly be lured to the theater. The timeline would then make sense for something horrible to be happening to the two women at the theater when Stephen unexpectedly arrived at the theater to do his laundry around midnight and stumble across the crime scene and the person of interest. In 1987, the person of interest was working on a play at the Civic Theater and became romantically involved with a castmate named Claudette Vulvia. She was a seamstress for the Civic Theater and a hospice nurse. She had mentioned she was repulsed by him to friends, but shortly thereafter, they began having an affair, and within months, Claudette was found dead by suicide. Many speculate he was involved in this death as well. For generations to come, this small town was rocked by their own boogeyman. In 1996, Crystal Glass Hicks, an Asotan resident, was a child on a family camping trip. She was walking back from fishing at the creek with her family to their camping area when a pickup pulled up next to her and asked for directions. So Crystal told the man she couldn't give him directions, but her dad was just up the road and the man could ask him. The driver then asked her to get in the car, which she found odd and refused. When her dad came into eyesight, the man drove off. Crystal and her family left their campsite that day, but her aunt and uncle stayed for one more night. That night, they were sitting by the campfire, and her aunt saw the man pop his head up from behind a bush, and a few minutes later, it happened again. The uncle went back to his truck, grabbed a pistol, and packed up their stuff to head home. A short time later, Crystal's aunt and uncle were at a street fair in Orofino, Idaho. There was a band playing, and they noticed one of the band members was the peeping Tom from the campsite. One of the friends they were with happened to be married to a Lewiston police officer and told them that the man was the person of interest in the killings in the Lewis-Clark Valley. The current detective working on the case is Jackie Nichols out of Asotan County. She is featured in the Investigation Discovery docuseries on the Elsie Valley murders called Cold Valley. In the documentary, you get to see all the ways she has investigated this ice-cold case and also a little bit about her home life. She is married to Ben Nichols, the prosecuting attorney of Asotan County, and they have four children together. One scene shows them discussing the case over coffee in the morning as she picks her husband's brain about how much more evidence would be needed to bring charges. It was a very interesting documentary, and I highly recommend you watch it. I was able to stream it on Discovery Plus, which I already had so I could watch the new John Bonet documentary, and I highly recommend that one as well. With advances in technology, Detective Nichols is taking steps that have never been taken before in the case, including testing the newspaper that was found with Kristen David in the Black Bigs in the River. Detective Nichols continues to doggedly investigate these cases to this day. The Lewiston Civic Theater that this case centers around was condemned in 2017, after water leaks had caused so much damage over the years that one of the trusses fell. 
The 114-year-old sandstone church at the corner of 6th Avenue and 8th Street in Lewiston is actually called the Bollinger Building, after world-renowned opera singer and Lewiston native Anne Bollinger, and is considered a historical site. The cost to repair would be in the millions. Unable to afford the expenses, the Civic Theater deeded the 114-year-old building to the city of Lewiston so the city could possibly stabilize and protect the building. The safety issues with the building are not just on the inside, but include falling debris that has landed on sidewalks where there is significant pedestrian traffic. In 2018, the city spent about $70,000 to patch the roof and repair the broken truss, but the council is at odds with how to proceed. Even if they decide to demolish the building, the bill would be around $250,000. In 2018, a task force was assembled to try and brainstorm how to save the building. They have applied to change the status of the task force as a nonprofit group so they can accept donations. The task force is still hard at work today fundraising and planning ways to repurpose the historical site. The Civic Theater Company has moved into a new building in Lewiston. The person of interest has moved to North Carolina, and through my research and diving down Reddit rabbit holes, He is still being accused of murders there as well. He is now 73 years old, and there is speculation everywhere this man has been. There are missing or murdered cold cases that fit his M.O., starting from where he was born and raised in Chicago. He was even questioned at the age of 15 in a missing child case that is still unsolved to this day. When he moved to California in the late 60s or early 70s, there was speculation of his involvement in cases there as well. From the suicide case of Antoinette and Nina, all the way to Reddit users speculating that he is the Zodiac Killer. He is also taken into consideration in several missing and murdered persons cases in the Pacific Northwest when the time frame puts him in that area. He owned many properties, and I would not be shocked at all to find out that he is responsible for many, many deaths outside of the LC Valley. And that is the case of the Lewis Clark Valley serial killer. This week's wine I've paired with my true crime. I'm going to break my rules here for a minute and go with 19 Crime Snoop Cali Red. Guys, I had a rough week. We got really bad news about my dog Paisley at the vet this week, and our family is devastated. She is the most beautiful German Shepherd you've ever seen. We adopted her from the Yakima Humane Society in 2018, and she has been the sweetest dog for our family. Anyways, I tell you this because my friend knew I was struggling and brought me this bottle of 19 Crime Snoop Cali Red to make me feel better. And although it's a California wine, it does have crime in the title, so I'm going to count it. Also, Snoop Dogg is on the label, so it just felt right. So here we go. Full and dense with strong black and blue fruit notes up front from the Petite Syrah, complemented by bright red slightly candied fruit in the background from the Zinfandel. The darkly toasted oak ties it all together along with the slightly sweet finish. It was delicious and the label and bottle were very fun too. Thank you Nikki for supplying my wine of the week. Cheers and thanks for listening.
This has been Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod or on Facebook at Upper Left Corner Podcast. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.